1: Released just three years after the iconic Raiders of the Lost Ark, this action-packed prequel takes us back to the 1930s where we find our intrepid archaeologist Indiana Jones in a web of peril when he becomes entangled with a ruthless cult hell-bent on capturing the mystical Sankara Stones and enslaving an entire village. Joined by reluctant lounge singer Willie Scott and the wise-cracking short round, Dr. Jones battles his way through treacherous jungles, dark catacombs, and a heart-stopping mind cart chase that had audiences gripping the edge of their seats. So grab your fedora, dust off your leather jacket, and prepare for an exotic dinner you'll never forget as Nicholas Pepin and I discuss Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom from 1984 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast.
2: If adventure has a name, It must be Indiana Jones This is
0: serious!
2: From Steven Spielberg and George Lucas Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom You
0: don't believe me Will, Dr. Jones?
1: (laughs) Hello movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, creator and host of the 80's Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by an 80s flick-loving guest co-host to talk about one of the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s, from blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing first-time watch memories, discussing our favorite iconic scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com as well. If you want to take your support to the next level, you can become a financial partner for less than $10 a month. The link to financially support the podcast is located in our episode show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out more fun facts, and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Alright, welcome in everybody, and so glad to have you for our very first episode of our Summer of Sequels series series. so excited for this series that we're doing on the podcast, and excited to talk about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, but let me introduce my guest co-host. You know him, you love him. He's a favorite here at the podcast from Pop Culture Roulette. Please say hello to Nicholas Pepin. How you doing, Nicholas?
3: I'm good. Have a well. I, mean, I think I already know how you're doing. <laughs> I've had that whole intro there already. But right. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm I'm ready to join in on the fun of the summer sequels.
1: Yes. Yes. And uh, you are a Indian. I know you made comments like you'd love to talk anything, Indiana Jones. So you were a game when I mentioned it to you. So uh, wonderful to have you on this one. I do want to mention. So for those of you that have been with the podcast for a while, I wanted to start the summer of sequels with this sequel, because the very first episode we did on this podcast was Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is still currently uh, at this point of recording. It is still number two in our most listened to episodes. But I will say that if this is your first time listening to the podcast and you want to go back and listen to that episode, I want to warn you, it is not the easiest episode to listen to because when I started the podcast, I learned things later that I didn't learn until I'd already started, but I should have done like a couple of, you know, practice runs of episodes before I just, I was just like, I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to record and put it out there and see what happens. Uh, so, you know, I was learning how to, the the pace of the show, I talked a whole lot, I had way more notes than I probably needed to, all of saying all that to say, uh, we've gotten better. I hopefully, if you go back and listen to that episode, you can see, or you can hear that, that the podcast has gotten better, uh, with better equipment, better editing, all that kind of stuff. So, but to honor the first episode, we're, we're starting off this, uh, summer of sequels with Temple of Doom, which I will say from the offset is not my favorite sequel of the franchise
3: no no it is not
1: yeah (laughs) Uh, but i figured we'd we'd go to the second one and not jump to the third one which is the one i'd rather talk about but anyway moving on (laughs) (laughs) well let's jump right in nicholas when did you see temple of doom for the very first time Hmm. you know again i yeah i think i say this every time
3: we do an episode with you Mm -hmm. uh i don't know Uh, (laughs) um I'm I'm guessing it would have been in in the early '90s when like because I mean when the Last Crusade came out in what 80, 89. 89, 89. Yeah. yeah so it would have been around that time when because like Young Indiana Jones was on TV yeah yeah that's right and, and so you know the home video being what it was I'm I'm guessing that this is the Temple of Doom would have been one that my my parents probably would have been a little hesitant to let me watch. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. guarantee you, we watched it at some point because I know that we love Raiders. I mm-hmm. know I watched Last Crusade a bunch. Mm-hmm. So there's no way I didn't see Temple of Doom. We just like, and we'll get through as we talk about it, we'll get to it. Like, it's just, it's not as bad as I remember. Yeah. Like I, I was going to say, rewatching the same thing. it. Yeah. Rewatching yeah. it. And I don't know if that's because the 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 specter of Crystal Skull is hanging out. <laughs> yeah, anything's better than that one for sure. Or or it's just you know you know uh, nostalgia has a way of softening things. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. But it's still you know it's not as good as Raiders. It's not as good as Last Crusade. But it's yeah.
1: it's still there's still a lot of fun in,
0: mm-hmm. in this
1: movie. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I was gonna say it was it was much more entertaining. Watching it again, and I had not watched it in a long time. We'll get to that too. But, uh, but yeah, I did see this one in the theater, uh, because we had seen, I want to say we saw Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater, but I specifically remember going to see this one in the theater as the family, like on a Saturday afternoon. And I remember the conversations being had when we left, like my parents being like, we really didn't expect it to be like that. It was really, you know, dark, you know, the, the, the cult stuff and the, you know, heart coming at live heart coming out of a man's chest like they were like are you guys okay and i was like man i thought it was cool whatever you know uh and my sister was older than me and she was you know she just thought in you know Harrison ford was hot so you know she wasn't she wasn't too concerned about it but um but yeah it's funny thinking about it now it's like that it didn't really like it didn't traumatize me in any way like i wasn't like overly scared about it um and i think because had it been the first one like if they had done this story instead of raiders first it probably would have been a little bit tougher to take in but because i mean you'd seen a melting face in raiders so that's still (laughs) you know uh that's not so uh kid friendly either no Um, and you know i don't
3: know where you're going to get to it in the notes but you talk about seeing it as a kid mm -hmm. and you have to remember that for some reason this was PG. Yeah. But that's because this one and Gremlins, and I'm sure other movies, but those two, those two specifically are the ones that they always point to as going, that's why we have PG 13
0: now. Yeah.
1: Because
3: that exact experience that you had with your family, Mm -hmm. a lot of other families had. (laughs) Where they're like, oh, Raiders was so cool. And they see this one, and they're like, oh, wait, what was that? Shield Monkey Brains? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There was like, I think. I don't think he was threatened with an R rating, but I think he was getting some flack from, from, you know, not parents, but flack from somewhere about, you know, you know, do we, do we tame it down or can we, you know, it's not quite horror as an R, but it is a little hard for younger kids. And so when Steven Spielberg tells a story, he says that he actually called the president of MPAA and said, Hey, can we get like another you know rating and i think he said originally it was like pg-14 or maybe pg-13 somewhere around there he said the guy was like oh we'll take it into advisement it's in like a month later they were announcing we have this new rating called pg-13 so he likes to say that he was the one that kind of got them to do it but i read other places where they said it had been something they had been working on since like the late 70s so it had been something they had already kind of already been thinking about doing but yeah i think um Gremlins, for sure. Raiders and Temple of Doom were very much one of the reasons why they went ahead and and changed the rating at that point. Yeah. Well, yeah,
3: it makes sense. You know, I mean,
1: especially Gremlins. And, you know, I know you did (laughs) you did that one. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that as well. Like I wanted my daughter to watch it. And this has been a couple of years ago. So she was around 10, which is around the same time I watched it as a kid and she was fine you know the first part and then once it started getting kind of dark she was like nah I'm not ready for this and I was like yeah I kind of forgot how it really it really jumps to very like much like a horror movie about 40 minutes in so uh so yeah and that's kind of how this one is this one kind of starts off kind of fun and you know the musical number at the beginning which is so kind of out of place and then but you have that kind of typical indie chase scene you know he hasn't he has an artifact or whatever that somebody else wants and then once they get to the uh to the palace it becomes a totally different type of movie at that point
3: well you know and i you know again i'm probably jumping the route here but i know that spielberg and lucas really liked james bond
1: yes Mm -hmm. and
3: and they you know they love the 1930s serials mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so they clearly combined their love of james bond <laughs> and the 30s serials mm-hmm. by having this over-the-top musical number right right and then and then a cold open that basically had nothing to do with the rest of the movie it was <laughs> yeah. just yeah i mean because I mean, that's almost every james bond movie is mm-hmm. that you've got this thing happening Yep. This nothing more than just a way to start the actual story Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, and, you know, well, I guess Bond also has the musical number, but that tends to be the animated credits. But, right, right. You know, but this one was uh Kate Capshaw singing in <laughs> half Mandarin. But, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. so, we'll, yeah, we'll get into it. Let's finish our, our initial questions. But this is what we do. This is the podcast. This is what you're tuning in for. Uh, so, how long had it been since you rewatched? I know we both said we enjoyed it more this time. Had it been a long time since you watched this one? I don't know how long it's been. It's probably been in
3: the last 10 to 15 years Mm -hmm. that I've watched it. Cause I know at some point they put out a DVD set of, of the three Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then I bought it and I I definitely rewatched them all then, but they put out a Lego Indiana Jones game. Okay. For they did, they did like, I think it was was the three movies. And then they did like Lego Indiana Jones two where they did like the three movies again, but kind of condensed. And mm-hmm. added in the Crystal Skull is like a bigger part of it. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, like, they, I mean, they do the movie almost identical to, you know, the game, but then they just make it humorous. So, like, you spend a lot of time with the game and doing the scenes in the movie. Mm-hmm. And you tend to forget, like, wait, I didn't actually watch the movie. I just <laughs> spent, you know, 36 hours playing it. You know? Right, right.
1: That's cool. Yeah, it's been probably the same for me. Like, I remember, like, within the last 13 years, obviously, because it was when I was still in, living in Jacksonville, that I think before it was Paramount, whatever was before Paramount Network on cable, one of those channels, they did like a Indiana Jones marathon on a Saturday. And I caught like the middle of Raiders. And I watched all of that. And then it was like Temple of Doom was next, like, oh, you know, I think I'm just going to go ahead and watch this one. And I'm pretty sure I watched it then. But this was the first time I've really sat down and watched it from beginning to end without commercials. You know, the regular, not that it's really that much edited for TV, but like just in its original, un, you know, uncut, no commercials, interruptions of kind of format. Um, I was very thankful. I have, I have the DVD set still. I think I have the four one that has Crystal Skull with it, um, or I bought it separate. I don't remember, but I have all four of them on DVD. But uh, right before, you know, uh, the end of May, Disney Plus put all of them on Disney Plus, all the Indiana Jones movies and the uh, Young Indiana Jones TV show, which I'm going to go back and watch at some point. Um, so they had it in 4K. So I was able to watch it on my TV in 4K. I was like, cool, i have to go by the Blu-ray and watch it on Disney Plus now,
3: which was kind of yeah, nice. I, I was gonna go down to the basement and get it, but then like right as you were like, Hey, do you want to do it? Disney, mm-hmm. you know, you were like, Okay, and then Disney Plus was like, We put them all on, and I'm like, <laughs> now I don't have to go to the basement. Right. All right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, and it's crazy because my you know, my DVD copy is literally under the TV. I could have went down, put it in my Xbox and watched it that way, but I was like, nah, I'll be all right. And then, even for more shame, I watch the behind the scene features on YouTube.
3: <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you how many movies I watch on streaming that I know I own on DVD. I just mm. don't want to go downstairs and get it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know it, is, it it makes me mad sometimes because I'll forget what I have on Blu-ray or DVD, and I'll be looking for it on streaming. And I'll spend like 20 minutes trying to find out where it is. And I'll be like, dude, you have it on a disc. Just go get it and put it in. It's like, oh, yeah, I forget that I have that one.
0: And now these messages.
4: Welcome to the Summer of Superman. Get ready for an electrifying journey through the iconic tale that shook the world of superheroes three decades ago. Moving Panels presents a special series dedicated to the monumental event that changed the course of comic book history. The Death and Return of Superman. Join us as we dive deep into the pages of one of the most impactful stories ever told, exploring the Man of Steel's ultimate sacrifice and his triumphant resurrection. But that's just the beginning. Experience the thrilling animated movies, The Death of Superman and Reign of the Superman that brought this epic story to life on the screen. In each episode, we will dissect every chapter, dissecting the emotions and going behind the scenes of this unforgettable saga and its animated counterparts. From the impact on Superman's friends and allies to the worldwide mourning that ensued, moving panels will leave no stone unturned, delivering a comprehensive exploration of this milestone in comic book history. So grab your cape and join us this summer for the Summer of Superman on Moving Panels, where we honor the 30th anniversary of the death and return of Superman, episode by episode, reliving the awe, the heartache, and the undying legacy of the man who inspired millions. Don't miss a single installment of this thrilling podcast event. Subscribe now to Moving Panels on your favorite podcast platform and be a part of the Summer of Superman. Now playing on a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's tombstone, what can I say? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before.
3: This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone.
4: We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up.
3: (sighs) What seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues, I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sunny boy! When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, Condensed, unfiltered, and raw from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay. Sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories.
1: All right, well, let's jump into story origin and pre-production. We've kind of talked a little bit about it already. This is going to be a little long, and I tried to shorten it but it was, there's some interesting things in here. So we'll try to take some breaks as we go. So it's not just me talking for the next 15 minutes, but here we go. According to director Steven Spielberg, George Lucas approached him for Raiders of the Lost Ark with the condition that if Spielberg directed the first film, he would have to direct a trilogy, but it turned out that Lucas did not have three stories in mind when he pitched the idea. So the other stories had to be made up. Uh, Both men attributed to the film's darker tone Compared to the first film, to their personal moods following their breakups, I think Lucas was going through a divorce, and Spielberg had just broke up with his girlfriend at the time. Uh, additionally, Lucas believed the film had to have a dark theme because of how Empire Strikes Back had was the dark second act of the Star Wars trilogy, which I think is horrible, you know, reasoning because Empire was like is telling one long story, or you know, Star Wars was telling one long story, and Indiana Jones wasn't and they even set this one before the first one. So you're not even telling the second part of a story. You're telling a story from before Raiders of the Lost Ark.
3: Yeah. I mean, to go back to the James Bond analogy, Mm -hmm. there's 26, 27 James Bond movies and you can watch them in any any order. Right. Any order you want, not really, except for the last few, but that's another matter. Right. But I mean, for the (laughs) most part, you can watch any order because it doesn't matter because they don't really take place in it. So you don't have to watch, like if you wanted to watch a proper timeline, you could watch it. If but it doesn't, the, none of the
1: movies really build off of each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Um, so I like this quote from Spielberg. He said, "The danger in making a sequel is that you can never satisfy everyone. If you give people the same movie with different scenes, they say you weren't more original. But if you give them the same character in another fantastic adventure, but with a different tone." you risk disappointing the other half of the audience who just wanted a carbon copy of the first film with a different girl and a different bad guy. So you win and you lose both ways, which I think we've seen that with a lot of franchises over the years where you try to go in a different direction and people are upset. You do this carbon copy of the same last movie, people are upset. So you're not going to please everybody. So to avoid repeating the use of Nazis as villains, Lucas decided to set the film in an earlier year than the first, Initially, Spielberg wanted to bring back Miriam Ravenwood with Abner Ravenwood as a possible character as well. Lucas developed the story, including an opening chase scene with Indiana Jones on a motorcycle on the Great Wall of China, followed by the discovery of a lost world with a hidden valley inhabited by dinosaurs. Additionally, the Monkey King was considered as the plot device, but Chinese authorities refused permission for them to film in the country, so a different setting had to be required. Lucas had written a film treatment that included a haunted castle in Scotland, but Spielberg felt it was too similar to Poltergeist, so the setting transformed into a demonic temple in India. During the early stages of development, Lucas proposed ideas for a film involving a religious cult that practiced child slavery, black magic, and ritual human sacrifice. Lawrence Kasdan, who had written the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, script, was was initially asked to write this script, but declined due to his distaste for the proposed storyline and the overall dark tone of the film. Lucas then hired Hilliard duck. I mean, sorry, Hilliard duck. I was going to say that then hired Hilliard Huck and Gloria Katz, who also wrote uh, Howard, the duck, by the way, who were knowledgeable about Indian culture to write the script. The writer spent four days at Skywalker ranch, discussing the story with Lucas and Spielberg with the initial plot revolving around Indy's decision to return a stolen item to a village and the film starting in China and moving to India. Lucas was focused on getting through meetings, while Spielberg paid more attention to the visual aspects of the film. Lucas's initial idea for Indiana sidekick was a virginal young princess, (laughs) but Huck and Katz and Spielberg disliked the idea, and I'm glad they did. Short Round came from a character with the same name in the 1951 movie, The Steel Helmet, written and directed by journalist and military veteran Sam Fuller. The character in this movie was a young Asian boy who followed the main character closely, like he like he who won followed Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones. Steven Spielberg came up with the idea to use the name based on the similarities of the characters. Anything to add so far? No. Or responses.
3: (laughs) Not not yet. I'm I'm sure I've got some coming.
1: Yeah. After this, Lucas handed Huck and Katz a 20 page treatment in May of nineteen eighty two titled Indiana Jones, the Temple of Death, to adapt into a screenplay. There were scenes such as a fight scene in Shanghai, the escape from the airplane, and the minecart chase came from earlier scripts of Raiders of the Lost Ark. In Raiders, the headpiece for the staff of Ra was originally conceived to be in two pieces, with the first piece in the Museum of General Hawk, a Japanese allied Chinese warlord in Shanghai. Jones was planned to steal that piece and then use a giant gong as a shield as General Hawk fired a submachine gun at him during this escape, much like the final moments in Club Obi-Wan. Kasdan said that was too expensive to produce for the earlier movie. After that, Jones was to fly to Nepal to find Marion and the second piece. In flight, he falls asleep and all the other passengers on the plane bail and parachute to safety, leaving him to escape alone using an inflatable raft to slide down a Himalayan slope to Marion's bar. Kazden said this was cut because it interrupted the story flow and was "quote too unbelievable." A complaint leveled by some critics at the finished scene in this movie, which I will say that is probably the most unrealistic of all the scenes of all the movies is them surviving by floating on a raft that hits a mountain.
3: Yeah, yeah. What did I, what did I say? Raft is a raft is a parachute to debog into an actual raft. Totally ridiculous. But it 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 follows in tradition with Indiana Jones because we do get a, you know, a
1: fridge coming in Crystal yeah. Skull. <laughs> yeah. This is true. This is true. But yeah, so it is interesting that they did have some of the scenes in this were things that they, they wanted to do in the first movie but couldn't. And so they just found, found ways to kind of work it into the story of this one, which... Some worked, some didn't. So Lucas, Spielberg, Katz, and Hoyt were concerned how to keep the audience interest while explaining the cult. Huck and Katz proposed a tiger hunt, but Spielberg said, there's no way I'm going to stay in India long enough to shoot a tiger hunt. They eventually decided on a dinner scene involving eating bugs, monkey brains, and the like. Katz said, Steve and George both still react like children, so their idea was to make it as gross as possible. The second draft of the script was completed in September. Originally, Captain Blumbert, Charter Lal and Mah- Mahar- Maharaja had more significant roles to play. However, some scenes including a dog fight and those featuring characters turning into zombies after drinking the Kali blood were eventually cut. Additionally, during pre-production, the title was changed from Temple of Death to Temple of Doom. Huck and Katz worked on final rewrites for the shooting script from March to April of 1983. Interestingly, Huck and Katz revealed that Harrison Ford ended up taking many of the one-liners that were initially written for short round, which I thought was interesting. So that's the making of the movie, or how it came to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm
3: sure in their heads, and and if we were to sit down and talk with them, mm-hmm. it would make a lot more sense on how they went from China to India by mm-hmm. long route, you know. But yeah. you know, I you know I I think what we got is way better than what they started with. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 you know. It's one of those things where, especially in sequels too, you see it where like in this case where they had things they wanted to do in the first movie that they couldn't do but they liked the ideas so then they kind of build the story around these action sequences that they want to put in the movie. That's my big, I'm jumping out of the 80s but my biggest issue of the I love the Mission Impossible franchise that's one of my favorites but I despise Mission Impossible too. but I also know that there was no real script for that movie Tom Cruise and the director whatever his name is that did face off John Woo like they, they started their meetings with what are the most ridiculous stunts we can think of and then took those stunts they wanted to do and then tried to build a story around it which is why the movie is so choppy well it was also the original running time was like three hours long so they had to cut a lot of they cut all the story out to keep the action sequences which makes it less enjoyable of a movie in my opinion
3: yeah i mean we could go on a whole tangent about mission impossible or fast and furious or (laughs) yeah yeah something like that but you know the the indiana jones i you know i i feel like i hadn't thought of it until i was doing the research for this movie but i do the the james bond comparison Mm -hmm. it makes a lot more sense oh yeah yeah they, they they didn't try to build on the story and continue to temple of doom is not related to Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is mm-hmm. not related to Last Crusade, which is not related. I mean, I think Crystal Skull is the first time that you even have like a returning character. Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, aside from was it Marcus? Like Marcus returns in the third one. Yeah, this is the one this is the only one that does not have a recurring character at all. Because okay. Marcus, you know, he worked he worked from the at the uh college okay is in, yeah yeah and that's uh, right and john but Riss yeah Davies, i mean uh, sala i think Sala's in the third one as well so they kind of brought back some characters to the third one but this one is completely separate
3: yeah but i mean you you can easily watch last crusade or Raiders of the lost ark and not oh yeah like, yeah they don't build off each other no, at all yeah or like if you tried to watch any of the mission Impossible movies without watching you know, well, you could probably skip two, but yeah, uh, without watching the other ones, like you do get lost,
1: you know, mm-hmm. yeah, especially the last couple, but yeah, you're right. But they that was true. I want to say that it, you know, it's been a while since I did that research, but I want to say like Indiana Jones was kind of birthed out of Spielberg wanting to make a James Bond movie, but knowing that they would never let him do one, so he kind of created his own version of James Bond of being like the archaeologist, but the. It's definitely an homage at the beginning of this one because he dresses in the tuxedo to look very much like a James Bond, Sean Connery, James Bond. So uh, it's definitely there. Are you ready to jump into casting? Sure, let's do it. Okay, Uh, we won't talk much about Harrison Ford because, of course, he was in the first one. So I've talked about him previously, Uh, but I will say that he underwent a strict workout routine with trainer Jake Steinfeld, body by Jake consisting of weightlifting and calisthenics such as push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, and squats to prepare for the role. Uh Spielberg also undertook the same routine to encourage Ford, but he quit after only a few weeks. <laughs> Which I thought was great. Harrison Ford also like threw out like had a serious back injury in one of the scene the fight scene in the uh the bedroom at the in the uh in the temple. And uh he was laid out for several weeks and so Spielberg actually had to film he ended up filming the fight scene at the end on the uh, rock crusher with the stunt double he filmed all of that and then filmed the close up shots of Harrison like three months later you know six or seven weeks later after uh, oh. he re- recovered from surgery so that was an interesting story I saw on the uh, behind the scenes featurette on the on YouTube alright so let's talk about Kate Capshaw as Willie Scott Capshaw moved to New York City to pursue her dream of acting, landing her first role in the soap opera The Edge of Night. Uh, She starred in Dreamscape in 1984 with Dennis Quaid and afterwards was directed by her then-boyfriend Armian Bernstein in Windy City. She She met film director and future husband Steven Spielberg upon winning the female lead as Willie Scott in this movie. In addition, she appeared in 1986 film Space Camp, followed by Power in 86 with Richard Gere and Gene Hackman and then starred at, in The Quick and the Dead with Sam Elliott in 1987. She had several film roles throughout the late 80s into the 90s. She starred alongside Michael Douglas, and Andy Garcia, and Black Rain in 89, Sean Connery and Lawrence Fishburne in Just Cause in 95, and Warren Beatty and Annette Benning in Love Affair in 1994. Uh, believe it or not, Sharon Stone was the top choice for the role of Willie Scott before Kate Capshaw auditioned. Stone later starred in King Solomon's Mines in 85 and its sequel, Alan Quartermain and a Lost City of Gold in 86, two films that attempted to duplicate the success of Indiana Jones franchise. Also, Marky Post of Night Court fame was heavily considered for the role of Willie Scott as well. I could have seen either one of them do it. Yeah,
3: yeah. Like Willie Scott is not like that memorable of a character. <laughs> like, it just... You know, I mean, I know that she's been somewhat critical of the role herself. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm.
3: I don't I don't think she's as bad as what what Kate Capshaw goes around saying about it. But, you know, there's definitely like Sharon Stone at the time, I think, could have done it.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Like, you know, it's not it's not like when we've we've talked about it in past episodes or even with Harrison Ford. Like, I would have a hard time seeing anyone other than Harrison Ford be Indiana Jones.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
3: Yeah. If you were to if you were to remake Temple of Doom, which uh, you know is not a good idea, but if you were, like, I don't think the Willie Scott role is so like, oh my goodness, you can't. You know?
1: <laughs> it wouldn't be hard to recast. Yeah, I would honestly. No. I think Marky e. Post would have been and, a good it, choice for that. Honestly, mm, you know, maybe because I've seen King Solomon's Mines and Sharon Stone in that role, it's pretty, pretty terrible, but it's also pretty terrible knockoff of indiana jones too so i guess those are similarities there but cape shaw's not terrible but the character just doesn't have much i mean she's and they said they wanted her to be completely different right. from raven i mean from uh karen allen's character uh in the first one who was very independent and like kind of an equal with indiana jones willie scott is just the damsel in distress that screams through most of the movie like i forgot how much she screams in this movie until so I was watching it. And I was like, yeah. gosh, is she going to scream in every single scene? Which the rumor is she did not know how to scream until she made this movie. Like Spielberg had to like, teach her how to scream at least the way he wanted her to scream for the movie, which is crazy. You know what I was saying? Like, it's no,
3: like I'm not, no knocking on Kate Capshaw. No, or yeah. Yeah. just, you know, this particular role yeah. is not necessarily well-written, you mm-hmm. know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've seen her in other roles where she's much better. She has a much more of a character to portray. And this one, she just, I mean, she does. She has a few shining moments that I will give her some credit for. Um And she probably brought some life, more life to the character than was probably on the page, I would think. Because especially, I think if they were, if Lucas and Spielberg are you know heavily involved in the writing, both coming off, you know, bad relationships and divorces, they're not trying to give a strong female character, probably.
3: Probably not. No.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, moving on, we'll talk about a, a character that I'll love to talk about more. Uh, that's Kehuan who as short round. Hopefully I'm not butchering his name. Uh, but as a child actor, he rose to fame, of course, playing short round in Indiana Jones in 84. And of course data in Goonies in 85 following a few roles in the nineties, like TV's head of the class and cult classic movie and man, with Brendan Fraser and Goonies co-star Sean Astin, he took an almost 20-year acting hiatus during which he worked as a stunt choreographer and assistant director. I had no idea that he worked as a stunt choreographer in Hollywood when he wasn't acting, which I think is
3: awesome. I I think I had heard that only because when he did make his comeback, mm-hmm. like people were like, where has he been? He was like, well, <laughs> he, I mean, he just wasn't acting, but he was still right. active.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 And so speaking of that, he returned as an adult at the science fiction film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once in 2022, a performance which won him various accolades, including an Academy Award, a Golden Globe and a Screen Actors Guild Award. He's one of two actors of Asian descent to win the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor and the first Vietnam-born actor to win an Academy Award. Time magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2023. So good for him. Uh Did you watch everything everywhere all at once? Have you seen it?
3: I know that you didn't like it very much um, from your review that you put online. I loved it.
1: Yeah. I can't say that I didn't like it. It just wasn't, I didn't think it deserved as much of the praise as it was given, but I did, I did like it. There were things that I liked. It was just, it was a little too weird for me. I see.
3: And that's where like, you know, I, I have a love for weird movies. I absolutely <laughs> think it deserved all the praise that it got. Um, I was actually given a copy on Blu-ray for my birthday. Oh, very nice. Um, so, yeah, you know, like I, I haven't watched it since I got it, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I, I think that the people who won the awards all, all deserve oh, the awards yeah, that they yeah. got. And it was, it was, it was nice to finally see a genre movie get, Mm-hmm. recognition when mm-hmm. they normally don't yeah but it, i mean it was so cool like watching the movie like going man i can't believe that short round or i can't believe yeah. that's data. yeah yeah like i i keep i because the i think data is probably the way i think of him most because mm-hmm. i've definitely seen goonies way more than i've seen this one <laughs> yeah uh but yeah. you know like his He's so iconic as Short Round with that wearing that Yankees hat. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's e- even even though I know Goonies better, like right. I still go, hey, that's Short Round. You mm-hmm, know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There, those are two definitely super memorable roles. But yeah, I'm like you. Like I probably know him more from Goonies because I've seen Goonies way more than this one. But there's still certain lines from this movie that are just emblazoned, like. You cheat, Dr. Jones, you cheat, you know, just like different things that he said, uh, you know, his little one-liners and stuff, which is fun. And like I said, the iconic, the the Yankees hat. And uh, even when he's doing, like he's doing the fight scenes, you know, he's doing some of those karate fight scenes, which they had a choreographer kind of helping him, but he was saying like, he grew up watching Jackie Chan movies. So he was already like used to doing some of those kicks and stuff. And he just thought he was fooling around. And when he got with the choreographer, the stunt chore- choreographer, he was like, oh, some of the stuff I'm doing is actually what I'm supposed to do. So it was kind of cool for him to do that. So uh, which I thought was I thought was nice. It was an open casting call put out to all the elementary schools to find a young Asian actor to play short round. Quan arrived with his brother not to audition, but merely to provide moral support. He caught the casting director's attention because he spent the entire time of his brother's audition telling him what to do and what not to do. <laughs> even steven spielberg liked his personality so he and harrison ford improvised the scene where short round accuses indy of cheating during a card game a scene they ended up, ended up putting in the movie because that's what they did during the audition uh Kwan roll, won the role over six thousand other auditions and last year he said that he did not know who harrison ford was before he started filming indiana jones and the temple of doom he had he had not seen Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark until after they finished shooting Temple of Doom, and that probably helped.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Because you know how did, does it say how old he was? I or I mean I might have missed that.
1: Yeah, I didn't put it in here. He was either like ten or eleven. I mean he was fairly young. So, yeah,
3: so yeah, old enough to maybe understand who famous people were, but not necessarily old enough to. Truly get it, but you know, right, right. Like, I think had he seen those movies, he might have it might have got you know either starstruck or maybe mm-hmm. a little bit more. You know, not quite the you know the performance that we got out of him right, you know, right. Like it's really hard to get a child with that age to give the kind of performance that he gave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and not not come off wooden. Right, right. You know, Jake Lloyd. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Whew.
1: Yeah, let's not get, let's not go down that road.
3: He did a really good job as as a child actor in this movie.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I agree. And I think he he pretty much steals most of the scenes he's in as well. Like he was a great addition to the cast, for sure. Those are the people that we probably know the best, but I will talk about two other actors that are not we know them as the role for this, but they didn't do a whole lot of other things, but, and I'm hopefully I will not torture, you know, butcher these names, but I'm sure I will. Amrish Puri as Mullah Ram, the priest who performs the human sacrifices. Puri acted in more than 400 films between 1967 and 2005, most of which were commercially successful and was one of the most successful villains in Bollywood. He is known to international audiences for his roles, of course, in Indiana Jones and the temple of doom as well as Gandhi's Muslim employer and patron in South Africa in Gandhi from 1982. For this movie, he shaved his head and it created such an impression that he kept his head shaved thereafter. His baldness gave him the flexibility to experiment with different looks as a villain in subsequent movies, and few were aware that in every film thereafter, he was wearing a wig. Puri and Spielberg shared a great rapport, and Spielberg often said in interviews, Amrish is my favorite villain. The best the world has ever produced and ever will, so I thought that was pretty cool. But yeah, he's he's a good bad guy for sure, good villain. Yeah,
3: I uh, I do try to watch foreign movies, but I don't get into Bollywood very much right, at all. Right. Mm-hmm. So not other than Mola Ram, I can't say I know. <laughs> yeah, i I know him for you know anything else.
1: Yeah, no. It's the only thing I've ever seen him in. I, I've never watched Gandhi, so I don't. I wouldn't have recognized him in that either. But the character is named after an 18th century Indian painter. Lucas wanted Molaram to be terrifying, so the screenwriters added elements of Aztec and Hawaiian human sacrificers and European devil worship to the character. To create his headdress, makeup artist Tom Smith based the skull on a cow, as this would be sacrilegious, and used a latex shrunken head for his headrest, which that makes sense. And then the other uh actor is Rashan Seth as Lal, the Prime Minister of the Maharaja. He began his acting career in the early 60s in the UK, but left acting the following decade and moved to India to work as a journalist. In the 80s, he rose to prominence for his comeback performance in Gandhi as well, which brought him a ba- which brought him a BAFTA Award nomination for Best Actor in a Supporting Role and reignited his interest in acting. He has since appeared in numerous British and American feature films and television programs, with roles ranging in Pass to Passage of India, My Beautiful Laundrette, Mississippi Masala, and Street Fighter the movie. (laughs) So you you didn't recognize him from Street Fighter?
3: No, no, I did. I try to forget that I saw that movie.
1: Yeah, I don't think I've ever it's like i'll see it on the streaming things i was like you know i don't know if i've ever seen this but i don't feel like i want to watch it now either so uh okay so real quick an uncredited dan Aykroyd appears briefly and with a british accent as weber who escorts jones short round and willie from their car to the plane which i recognized him immediately and always forget that he's in this movie until he pops up did you recognize him
3: i yeah as soon as i saw him, i was like yep that's dan
1: Aykroyd." (laughs) Like just, just hanging around London, thought he'd be in be in a movie with Steven Spielberg all of a sudden. Well and it's one of those things that's like
3: like I, because he's Dan Aykroyd, like I kept waiting for him to come back into the movie. Right.
0: right, right. And
3: then just like uh oh, that's weird, like mm-hmm. it's not like Dan Aykroyd was a nobody with this movie. Exactly, came out. yeah. So yeah, exactly. you know, like like that's somebody that everybody would have been like, Hey, that's <laughs> it and then
1: just never came back in the movie. Nope. Like just a little just a little walk on cameo that's all he had to do uh so my favorite little story about the cast is this actor pat roach plays the uh cult overseer in the mines with painted brown skin he had previously appeared as the german mechanic the giant sherpa in raiders of the lost ark and he actually sh- i think he shows up again in uh last crusade so he actually fights indiana jones in all three movies as a different thug, <laughs> which I think is pretty fantastic.
3: Oh, well, I mean, when you got something, you know, you're gonna make it work for exactly, you. exactly.
1: Yeah. But like Harris is probably, well, I have to get beat up by this guy again. <laughs> so, anybody else from the cast that you wanted to mention that I might have forgot about? Well, there was no Taylor
3: Negron or Vincent <laughs> Givalli, No. so
1: none of our Better no, Off Dead no, uh, alumni made it into this one. Amanda Wiss. No, John Cusack. No,
3: no, so I can't. I can't bring. Can't bring up any of those people. So no, the, the cast was, you know, yeah. I mean, it's for having such a large cast. Like it really was basically just the three people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know.
1: Um. I didn't. I didn't put his name down. But the leader of the village that tells them about the the curse on the on the village. Um. I don't. I can't remember his name. I didn't write it down. But a cool story was that. He spoke absolutely no English whatsoever. And so to film those scenes, he was actually repeating the words that Steven Spielberg was saying to him. So he was saying his lines phonetically, not knowing what he was saying. And Spielberg even said like he was even giving him the motions of like what, you know, move his hand across his forehead. And he says the dark cloud came over, whatever. And so if you'll notice there's like breaks, like he has long pauses. And Spielberg was like, that's why those pauses are there because I had to feed him the next lines for him to repeat. And so the editor had to like really work with that to make it seem a little more seamless, which I think is fantastic.
3: Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, good for him for <laughs> giving
3: it a shot.
1: Yeah. I mean, it works. I would have never, I never would have thought that he didn't speak English. I would have thought that, you know, the, his English wasn't that, wasn't that terrible.
3: No, no. For somebody who apparently didn't speak it at all, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, let's jump into favorite or iconic scenes. I know there's going to be several in this one. So which, which iconic scene would you like to talk about first? Um. Well. Uh, As you one of my your <laughs> uh, One of my favorite scenes
3: is one you you already kind of briefly touched on. Mm-hmm. I I love the the when uh Indy and short round or playing poker and catch each other cheating. Yes. And like, they're having this whole conversation like, Mm -hmm. and Willie is just freaking out the whole time. Yeah. And those two are just (laughs) ignoring her. Yeah. Like just like she is just going on a tangent about how Mm -hmm. terrible everything is. And she's screaming and Mm -hmm. she keeps coming across the snakes and animals. And (laughs) and they're just, it's like they're in another room Mm -hmm. or like another building. Like they're just not, I I did really enjoy that scene.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is a fun That's definitely a fun scene, a good little comedic scene before you get into all the you know dark elements of the movie. Uh, I do like the scene in that kind of that empty little campground scene where the uh elephant keeps like bumping her and she's like, <laughs> Leave me alone, leave me alone. And then the snake comes down over her shoulder and she thinks it's the elephant trunk and then slings it over while Indy is completely freaking out because it's a snake. Which oh, yeah. I love that. I love that scene. That's always been one of my favorites. All right. What's your next iconic scene? I mean the Minecart. I mean Yeah. Yeah. That and I'll say that's one of the scenes that rewatching it made me enjoy it more. It was like I remember how fun that was seeing that as a kid. And like you said, I think maybe watching it now, the nostalgia part of it made it more enjoyable more so than the movie as a whole because it's still problematic in a lot of areas but that scene specifically took me back to my childhood even when it's kind of the POV of the tracks like you're on a roller coaster it was like I want to throw my hands up in the living room like I was on the roller coaster Uh and just remember that feeling of being in the theater and seeing that like that was the coolest thing ever.
3: I mean it's it's really the kind of the centerpiece of the movie I mean mm-hmm. the whole minecart chase scene like which you know let's not get into the problematic nature of like how ridiculous it is
1: but you know the whole the whole movie movie is is ridiculous ridiculous. exactly (laughs) yeah
3: but uh i mean yeah i mean it is i mean it's what they kind of sell the movie on i mean it's Mm -hmm. just you know is that that whole minecart scene which Mm -hmm. is you know it's a lot of fun you know you can't you can't go wrong and if you want to have even more fun with actually playing it, try the Lego game.
1: <laughs> that would be fun. Watching it, especially now with like better quality, it's easier to see the parts that are the miniatures uh, for some of the scenes, which yeah. I think I even re- I remember like noticing when I was younger. But they're a little bit more pronounced now uh, for the for the miniature scenes, which are still pretty fun. the The cool thing is like the entire like the live scenes of them on the actual track was just a circular track in one of the largest rooms they had in the studio. And so he said they just basically shot them doing the same kind of moves on the track. They would just change the lighting to make it look like it was a different part of the cave, which is pretty smart. You got to give it to them.
3: Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, that's the thing about, like, watching something in 4K now or, you know, watching it, you know, we've got these a hd 4k all the <laughs> bells and whistles mm-hmm. you know stuff that was made back in the 80s like well you know like you know well it was I, the only thing i think of off the top of my head is like the coffee cup in game of thrones <laughs> you know you go back right. and you watch the 80s movies you see a lot more stuff like that Who mm-hmm. might show up yeah stuff yeah. that i don't think we were ever actually meant to see
1: right right but
3: Because, you know, back then we didn't think that people were going to uh, rewatch movies or watch Mm. them as carefully as as we do now.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Freeze framing and, you know, the pause button on the VCR changed a lot of how movie was made after that because realizing that you could rewind and rewatch a scene over and over again and catch an unintentional or intentional mistakes or Easter eggs that the producers or movie makers wanted to do so um yeah very much so but yeah that's that but that's definitely a fun scene and you know there's there are some effects that do look a little a little more cheesy now with the uh, hd the water coming through the mines is definitely a miniature and them running in front of a, a screen of the water behind them so that's pretty pretty evident and even the one where where well, he pushes them into the other lane or something that's like superimposed on the screen it was pretty was pretty noticeable as well. There are a few scenes like that, I think.
3: Yeah. Let's see what else do I got here? Uh, pulling the heart out, mm-hmm. and then the guy staying alive. I mean, I can't think. That's another one that that's <laughs> yeah the the mind card scene. That scene are are pretty heavily parodied.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, but like mm-hmm. yeah, you
3: know, the whole um boom, shabai, um boom, shabai, and then he pulls the heart out.
1: And then, right. The guy.
3: Yeah the guy stays alive. It's like, wait a minute. I mean, that guy's literally (laughs) holding his beating
1: heart. How are you still? Right. And then the heart turns to flame. Once the body goes into the flames, like that's, you know, all the mystical, magical stuff. But then of course the bridge scene is pretty iconic too. Yeah. Um, I
3: got that. I got that one down too. Yeah.
1: yeah. Which is, that's, that's one of my favorite scenes too. Always like that, that scene. And then, it's just cool watching that watching that bridge break and watching it fall on both sides was was pretty cool. And they got that on one they had to do that in one take to do to Yeah, see. something like that you really don't get a second <laughs> chance at. You know. Yeah. I'm I'm probably going to I'm probably jumping into trivia that I have later, but Steven Spielberg is deathly afraid of heights. So when they built like they had so I think they filmed in Sri Lanka because they weren't allowed to film in India. So where they were close to filming, there was actually like a it was like a university or a company like a corporation that was into physics. And so they were able to get them to come and actually build that actual bridge for them, like 200 feet off the ground. So it it wasn't as high as on the movie, but it was still pretty high off the ground. So it was like very sound. Steven Spielberg said he could only go out about a third of the way on the bridge on either side. and That was as far as he could go but Harrison Ford would run back and forth on the bridge just to drive (laughs) Steven Spielberg crazy, which I thought was pretty, pretty hilarious. So on the, on the behind the scenes feature, they actually have footage of you watch Harrison running across the, uh, the bridge, which is pretty cool.
3: My, my mom's deeply and deathly afraid of of rope bridges, or suspension Mm -hmm. bridges. Mm -hmm. Um, And my sister and I are not. <laughs> so as a family whenever we ended up uh doing hiking or, or trips where we were mm-hmm. we would we would get on either side of mom and really kind of
1: the, the,
3: yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah, yeah. move move the right yeah uh we thought that was funny um uh, i mean it probably still is but <laughs> yeah i so i i get where harrison ford's coming from mm-hmm.
1: you know all right, well, let's talk about the dinner scene. I think the dinner scene is probably another one of the most iconic scenes of the movie as well. When you well, you were probably older when you saw it, if you saw it in the 90s, did it gross you out when I you mean, saw it the first time?
3: Yes and no. I mean, it's one of those things like it, it's a movie. Mm-hmm. So like I know it's a movie. Mm-hmm. So like it's hard. It's hard for me to get like too squeamish about it because I know it's all special effects and right you know, right like none of it, it's real mm-hmm. but yeah the idea of like like if i was at a dinner and somebody brought out a giant wriggling snake and i was like oh a snake surprise <laughs> mm-hmm. and then cut it open it was just you know more snakes yeah i mean i'm not afraid of snakes but i'm not saying i'd take that well right <laughs> right
1: yeah the chilled yeah, monkey the brains soup. the eyeball soup Yeah, yeah
3: i the although i will say the cockroach yeah uh, maybe because it's hd <laughs> looks so fake like the other yeah. stuff at least was you know somewhat realistic you know mm-hmm. but yeah that cock the cockroach or the scare of whatever it was mm-hmm. supposed to be just really really the 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 hd nature of the tv just uh really took away from the realism <laughs> of that one so probably toned down the grossness
1: yeah yeah So, of course, they got a lot of flack for that scene. That was all Lucas and Spielberg, and they wanted, they just, they kept adding to it. Like, let's make it even more gross and make it, you know, just, but they were trying to, like, they wanted it to be seen as funny. Like, they thought it was going to play as a funny scene. Like, oh, my gosh, it's so ridiculous that they would cut open a snake or, oh, that it's monkey brains. Like, they thought it was, they were trying to do it as a comedy bit but it didn't really play that way in the movie the way they thought it would. And they said, looking back on it, they kind of regret some of the things they did in it. And even in, you know, the Indian culture, Indian government, first of all, wouldn't allow the movie to be shown for a long time uh, in their country, but they were upset because they felt like that was not a accurate representation of the kind of food they ate. And even like the Indian actors that we mentioned earlier, they were like, but it's a fantasy. They're like, you should know, and that's, this was a direct quote. He's like, you should know if you see three people survive jumping out of a plane on an air raft and surviving, that anything that happens after that cannot be real. Yeah. So, so it was like, so I thought that was, I thought it was interesting because, like, thinking as a kid, like, I didn't see that as a comedy. I mean, it was kind of funny, like her reactions to it. You know, that was right. the comedy part of it. But I did, as a kid, think like, oh, that must be really what they eat over there. Like, I that would would have been my. My thought process. So I don't think it played on the comedy the way they thought it would. I think the comedy was her reaction, not oh how ridiculous is this food they're bringing out because it's a different culture. We just thought that's oh I guess that's what they eat over there.
3: Yeah, I don't I don't know if I ever thought that. I mean, it's possible I did. It's it's hard to get back into the the mindset of the mm-hmm. you know the the twelve to fourteen year old <laughs> I was when I saw this movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it, it's also hard for me to understand why George Lucas and Steven Spielberg thought that scene was calm like. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, I guess you I mean you're right. Like their their reactions and their reactions are her reactions. Mm-hmm. You know, like when he was like, "Ooh, cockroach!" And like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like his, they, they are the over the topness of like the the guys. Mm-hmm. You know, matched mm-hmm. with her just like horrified, like right, right. You know, you're right. I mean, it is kind of like but i don't yeah i don't really understand how it's supposed to be comedy.
1: Mhm. Yeah, it's like i i want to kind of go back and watch the scene now with that look at it through that that mindset and kind of see try to maybe see it in a different different way, but it's still an iconic scene. I definitely want, you know, it had needed to be need to be discussed for sure. So any any uh, other favorite scenes or iconic scenes? There was that fight scene in the in the hotel or the the, the The room the bedroom the room mm-hmm.
3: where i did write that must be the most powerful fan ever <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> as somebody who has installed many ceiling fans in his <laughs> life i don't think there's one of them that i've ever installed that would be powerful enough to uh hang a guy
1: mm-hmm. a big guy at that you know that wasn't a yeah. small guy he was fighting either
3: right yeah um, and then I also wrote. Uh, it was shortly after that when they were going through the catacombs, and mm-hmm. uh, Andy was like, "Don't touch," and he immediately touched. Yes, like,
1: yes, that's yeah. I was, that was going to say like another one of my favorite scenes is that scene in the the spiked room that starts to come down on them, which I think was okay. was a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and and the uh, you know the the obvious throwback to. Yeah, you know, the first one, and then they do it. I think they do it in all of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, Where have to reach back under and pull the hat out.
1: Yep. Yep. I like that. I like that scene a lot. And I think it's funny too. Uh, and I think Spielberg even said, like, that was one of his favorite scenes to film. But he said that originally, like, they came up with the idea while they were shooting it for when she comes in for her to hit the piece with her butt and it start all over again and them trying to run out. He said, and Spielberg talked about, it, he said that. Lucas really wanted to keep it dark like he wanted to be as dark as possible and Spielberg was one that kept trying to throw in comedy bits to lighten things up and he said that was one of the ones that he felt was that was one of his things of lightening up the the mood or the moments of you know uh it starting back up again and them having to run out him grabbing the hat which then became like I said they've done in all the other every other sequel at that point anything else yeah
3: uh I mean, there's the one line that I think most people quote. That it's almost a throwaway line, way earlier in the movie than I thought. Uh, <laughs> no time, no time for love, Doctor Jones. Yeah, <laughs> yep, uh, yep. I, I hear that line parodied a lot on various things, and it's like, wait, that happens like <laughs> five minutes into the movie, or
5: mm-hmm. ten, yeah, ten minutes oh, yeah, into yeah. the movie. And now these messages. What's up dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads.
1: If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and
0: Christmas?
5: Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas special.
4: Plus classics shown every year.
5: You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers...
1: And Cabbage Patch Kids.
5: Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle...
1: And Chant with the Littles.
5: So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories.
4: Later, dudes.
2: Hey, everybody. Do you ever just sit around with your friends and reminisce about the days and how things used to be when you were a kid or a teenager or maybe even a young adult? The TV shows and the movies that you watched at the time and how things just aren't quite the same today? Well, let me tell you, I've got the place for you. My name is Chris Adams and I'm the host of the podcast Retro Life for You. And here at Retro Life for You, We talk about and discuss movies and TV that is retro, and we are going back from the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. Hey, sometimes we might even touch back to the 70s if we're feeling good. If this is for you, make sure you look for us on everywhere that you can find your podcast at, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, or hosted on Anchor FM. And make sure you follow us on all the major networks and leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Look forward to hearing from you.
1: All right, well, let's jump into some trivia scenes and our trivia and maybe think of some other scenes. I think some of these I've kind of already talked about because they're talking about that scene with the uh, spiked room. The bug chamber sequence. Kate Capshaw was really covered with over 2000 in- insects. She actually had to take sedatives prior to the scene just to get over initial fear, but she claimed they definitely worked. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody took the time to get this the stat for you, but Willie Scott screams a grand total of 71 times throughout the movie. Which is a lot, considering it's barely a two-hour movie. Right. <laughs> I think that's probably 70 times too many times that she screamed in that movie. Yeah. This is a funny story. I don't know how true this is, but I had to share this one. So while filming the whipping scene where Indiana Jones being whipped before he gets brainwashed, the crew played a practical joke on Harrison Ford. While he was chained to a large stone, Barbara Streisand appeared dressed in a leather dominatrix outfit. She (laughs) proceeded to whip him, saying, that's for Hanover Street, the worst movie I ever saw, which is the movie he was in in 1979. She continued whipping him for making Star Wars and making all of that money, quote unquote. Carrie Fisher showed up for some reason and threw herself in front of Ford to protect him. And Irvin Kershner chided director Steven Spielberg saying, is this how you run your movies? Uh, supposedly this entire sequence has been it was filmed, even though it's not been released to the public.
3: I'm kind of surprised it hasn't been. It right. would be funny. It would be oh, funny yeah, yeah. to see it.
1: Yeah. I mean. Barbra Streisand in a dominatrix suit. Yeah, I don't necessarily
3: want to see that part <laughs> of it, but I would like to see the scene. You know, you know, just because it would be funny.
1: Many fans have expressed thoughts regarding Jones and his friend's choice to go back into the mines instead of leaving through the palace with the rest of the escaped captives. Which I kind of didn't think about that till I read read this. An explanatory scene was shot showing Indian Willie helping the freed children cross the lava pit over a makeshift bridge. When the time comes for short round across the pit, the bridge has caught fire under the intense heat, and Indian Willie managed to save him in the nick of time from falling into the lava pit. With the bridge crumbling, the trio has to find another way out, and that is through the mines. The most logical explanation for this cut seems to be the pace and not the film's running time since it ended up at an hour and fifty three minutes. Even the addition of all the scenes mentioned in this writing would not have pushed the film over the two hour barrier. But I will say there was a thing that I don't think I have it written here either, is when they did the first edit of the movie, they realized it was too fast. And that's weird to hear because most of the time things are cut because it's too slow. Right. But like the last 45 minutes of this movie is pretty much like nonstop action. Like it's it's moving very quickly. So I could see how they may have had to, you know, cut some stuff because it was. Just to adjust the pacing somewhat, or just too much action crammed into that amount of time.
3: Yeah, no, but I, that scene would have, I think, added to the movie, and maybe, yeah. You know, I yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how. I know Spielberg is very hesitant to go back and cut his movies or do mm-hmm. director's cut after uh, after he made some mistakes with ET. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't know. It, but it would be interesting to see if they would go back if even if that footage still exists i mean most of right. that stuff yeah you know, hit the cutting room floor and then disappeared for time and eternity but mm-hmm. uh yeah it would be nice to, have, to maybe do a director's cut one of these days yeah uh, where some some of that stuff gets put back in but yeah
1: or even just lost footage to put in to a deleted scene or something would be nice to see because i'm sure yeah i don't know that would be a good scene to see i mean it was, obviously it was a good um suspenseful moment which does you know make a little bit more sense because i did i didn't really think about it i think because maybe it's thing because the action is moving so fast you don't have time to think about why didn't they go with the kids the kids went that way they went this way but yeah I don't know. all right and then i'm gonna end this part with this quote from steven spielberg about the movie in 1989 he said quote i wasn't happy with temple of doom at all it was too dark too subterranean and much too horrific i thought it out poltergeist there's not an ounce of my own personal feeling in Temple of Doom. He later added during the Making of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom documentary, he said, Temple of Doom is my least favorite of the trilogy. I look back and I say, well, the greatest thing that I got out of that was I met Kate Capshaw. We married years later, and that, that to me was the reason I was fated to make Temple of Doom. So that's interesting that he's kind of, you know, he's kind of said that's his least favorite of the trilogies. I know that's my feeling as well. I would uh I'd
3: like to know like when that interview was done in relation to Crystal Skull.
1: <laughs> Way before that. That was 89.
3: Okay, yeah. So I'd like to know like now
0: because
3: mm-hmm. I know I know he's not doing Dial of Destiny which right, uh, right. you know which will be coming out shortly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't. But you know, I I don't know. It would be interesting to see I and you know now that it's on Disney Plus, maybe I need to rewatch it and give it a, yeah. Like, yeah, give it another try, see if it
1: really is as bad as I remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. I've I've actually because I I remember I bought the DVD when it came out because I had so I, the 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 set that I have is just the three, and then when the new one came out, I was like, well, I want to complete my set, so I bought it, and I have watched it a few times, and it's like I enjoy it up until the very end it's like the ending just loses me when it becomes the extraterrestrial you know spaceship buried or whatever that's when i just like okay you lost me at the end <laughs> yeah but but i'll definitely go back and watch it um cuz i'm going to go back and watch uh last crusade cuz that's that is my favorite of the of the three
3: absolutely i mean it is of of the ones that we've got so far Mm-hmm. It, well, it it seems that you know the the odd numbers one and three are good, two and mm-hmm. four are not so good. <laughs> so um, there's there's hope for five, right? Right. But you
1: know, I don't know. We'll see. I'm going in with very cautiously optimistic. Yeah, ca- that's the word. I'm going cautiously optimistic. It's like I'm not going to be so hyped for it, but I hope that it's. I hope that it's good. Yeah. I hope. At least hope that it redeems itself from Crystal Skull. All right, well, box office, let's talk about it. Uh, So Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was released in American theaters on Wednesday, May twenty third, 1984, just before Memorial Day weekend. It debuted at number one with no real competition from other new releases. It did unseat Robert Redford's The Natural, which had held the top spot the week before. Yeah, it was a big hit. It was definitely more of a financial success than a critical success because it did not do very well with the critics. When it first came out, I think it's gotten better over the years, but the initial reviews were not not as good. So Rotten Tomato has it at 76 on the tomato meter with an 82 percent audience score. And IMDb is a 7.5 out of 10 with viewers and a 57 on Metacritic. Man,
3: Metacritic. I don't <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of surprised that the audience that high. on. Yeah. Yeah. On, Rotten, on Rotten. Rotten
1: Tom- Yeah. Rotten Tomatoes. I've had the yeah. same thought.
3: And it's actually kind of surprising that it's that high on IMDb as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, man, I'd probably give it more
1: like a six and a half, mm-hmm. seven, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm leaning like right at seven, seven and a half was a little too much for me, but I would, I would give it a seven, probably. Yeah. 6.9 to seven in that, that range. But 57 is definitely too low. But like I said, I think I definitely enjoyed it more watching it this time than the last few times I watched it. I um I did have one
3: thing that uh that uh, caught me this time that I somehow never paid attention to before. Mm-hmm. So Mola the big the big bad, the villain, yes, mm-hmm. doesn't show up in the movie mm-hmm. until over an hour. Yeah, of a movie that's just shy of two hours. So mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Uh, and then like for that matter, he's not even really in it that much. Mm-mm. Like um, but did you catch and, and this is probably when I haven't seen it for a long time. The music when they were in introducing or having, you know, Mola Ram show up for the first time. I know that John Williams did the score mm-hmm. of of this. Very duel of fates from Phantom Menace.
1: Oh, really? yeah
3: i definitely caught some of the same i was like i mean no granted i mean i'm not knocking john williams by any stretch of the imagination but you know and i guess maybe because you know you only have so many chords you only have so many notes (laughs) that everything kind of starts to sound the same after Mm -hmm. a while but Mm -hmm. i mean when you listen to jurassic park you listen to star wars you listen to indiana (laughs) man the superman you know like it all Kind of similar,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know.
3: But yeah, I definitely, you know that 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 scene where where uh, Darth Maul shows up and the scene where Maul of Ram show up is, you know, they definitely, uh, you know, they're related. The, mm-hmm. That that music, like, yeah. tell.
1: So his villains themes are very similar amongst the, at least those two are those two. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't pick up on it, but I, de- I definitely want to. I'll definitely check it out next time I watch it for sure.
3: And then the last, the I, uh, I was they kept talking about the cults, you know, the cult of thuggy. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I just, I, you know, I get to thinking and I go on rabbit holes, and, and I, <laughs> I did a, I was like, is that a real thing? Mm-hmm. And it is, like, it's yeah. a real, it's a real cult, it's a real group, and it's not so much a cult that is a group, or you know, but that is where we get the English language word thug from.
1: Oh really? I did not know that.
3: Because I, I went down the rabbit hole of just (laughs) what, like I got away from like what's going on in the movie into Mm -hmm. what's going on with this cult because it was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And like I was like, you know, and it it never it never dawned on me until Saturday night when I was rewatching the movie that that is where why we have the word thug, (laughs) like because because of the cult. yeah, have the thuggy cult that existed wow. long before probably the English language, but.
1: <laughs> wow. That's good. Yeah. I, I almost dove into that, but I didn't. And so I'm glad you did. So that was, that's good to know. I tried not to use the word because I knew I was going to, I was like, is it thuggy or is it thuggy? I was like, I'll just not use the word at all. And just call it the cult. But yeah, I, I thought they
3: said thuggy in the movie.
1: They might have, but I couldn't remember I, if they did or not.
3: But because. We have the word "thug," and it's a word that we use, <laughs> you know, fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I feel confident in calling it the thuggy cold.
1: Sure, it works for me. <laughs> I think we've covered this one pretty well.
3: I think we have as well. Yep.
1: Yeah, good deal. All right, man, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining. I've enjoyed. I'm I'm still catching up on my podcast, but I have. You're currently in your who played it better series have y'all is, I know you're, is about to move into the bracket now, right?
3: Oh, we just, we just put out part one of the bracket. Okay. Yeah. I, I had only intended on doing the three parts, mm-hmm. uh, but like any good series, we just, you know, once you get into a series, you got to stretch it. You just got to keep <laughs> going, you know? At some point, at some point, I'll figure out how to go go to space and really just jump the shark entirely. There you go with the franchise. But uh, until then, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So we just put out part one, but by the time this comes out, I think uh, we might have part two out. The final final bracket. Okay. I don't know how much longer I can stretch, how much more taffy <laughs> I can pull out of pull out of that topic, but you know it's it's right. been a lot of fun so far. So why why stop now?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I made it through the DC bracket, so that was or not bracket, but the DC episode about it. So or no, did I do Marvel? Was it Marvel or DC?
3: Well, we went the others, then Marvel, then DC. So.
1: Oh, I did Marvel. So, yeah, I did okay. other I, others and Marvel. So, I haven't listened to the DC one yet. So that's that's where I'm at, and I'm still trying. I'm trying to catch up on a lot of different podcasts right now. I'm way behind, but uh, but yeah, definitely check out Pop Culture Roulette with Nicholas and the guys. Let them hear them nerd out on their multiple. Topics that they love to, to talk about, which is which usually turns into some kind of bracket. I think we're becoming kind of the bracket podcast at this point.
3: Yeah. Yeah. If we can figure out how to make a bracket out of it, we probably will.
1: <laughs> Very cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Be sure to follow, subscribe, rate, review the podcast. You can always support the show through buymeacoffee.com. And of course, you can buy a t shirt or a sweatshirt from the website. Uh, 80s Flick Flashback.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone who loves 80s flicks. And also, you can follow us on social media Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Nicholas, thanks again, man, for being here. Always a pleasure to have you. You'll be back. We're going to cover Lethal Weapon 2 during the summer of sequels. So be looking for that one coming out this summer as well. Looking forward to it. Yes, sir. All right, everybody. I'm Tim Williams for the 80s Flick Flashback podcast. Good night, good
5: people. You're still here?